Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Welcome to the show, my friends. In professional sports, there are really three entities or three stakeholders that are involved, right? There is the ownership, the players, and us, the fans. But each one has a kind of a different role to play, and each one is invested in the outcome, but in a different way. The ownership is invested in the outcome, I would say, the most because they have financial interests. In other words, they, their capital is tied into the team and they have finan- uh, strong and major financial interests in the team's success, which leads to uh, better sales and, and so on. The players are involved to a degree, but not quite the same degree. For example, in a poorly managed uh, team that uh, keeps losing and doesn't have a very strong fan base like the Tampa Devil Rays used to be, let's say, late 90s, early 2000s, you could still have and often did have some star players. And those, you know, because of the draft system and everything else. So, I'm talking about baseball here. So, these star players, not to say that they, you know, liked losing, of course. Of course not. But, they could have breakout seasons in a last place team. And that would mean that their career was going to be just fine. Because, as soon as they became free agents, they would have offers, uh, you know, coming and knocking at their door from at the door from every possible direction from, you know, the leading teams in the division or in the league or in all of baseball. And then I would say that the fans have a different kind of involvement. The fans are involved emotionally. So the fans obviously don't have a financial stake neither for themselves personally like the players, nor for any businesses that they may or may not um, own, uh, like the the ownership, but they have a kind of an an emotional attachment, right? They have, fans have emotional attachment uh, to their team, the the team that they're, uh, you know, rooting for, and uh, quite often individual players. And it's that emotional attachment that kind of uh, almost... A feeling of catharsis, of, of spiritual cleansing when the team wins, or disappointment when the team loses, or you know, following the career of this or that player as they go through being first drafted and developing and succeeding and so on. That is very emotionally powerful. It's a form of theater. And that's why uh, professional sports are such a big business and are so successful. But where I'm, where I'm going with this is, this is that in the game of life, when we talk about politics, I fear that the American public, who should really be playing the role of ownership, 
are still playing the role of fans. And what I mean by that is that the American people should be the owners. We, the people, are the boss. And we have tremendous capital invested in the future of America. I mean, I am uh, an immigrant to America. I'm an American citizen, but I don't really consider myself a full-fledged American by any stretch of the imagination because my family did not come to America in the 16 or 1700s and did not fight in all the American wars and did not settle this virgin continent with the blood with their own blood and the sweat of their brow. So I don't consider myself on a, in any way, shape or form as deserving of the title American as uh, those folks whose, whose uh, ancestors came to the continent uh, uh, centuries ago. But many Americans are invested in this enterprise called the United States in major ways, from paying taxes uh, for, for, for throughout their lives to having their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents and so on fight and sweat and pay taxes and develop this country, this, this, this wilderness into the fantastic country that it is now. So the American people are really the owners, right? Now, who are the players in this analogy? In this analogy, the players are the politicians. So President Trump, for example, is not the owner. He is a kind of a star player, let's say. He is our a starting pitcher that we hired to demolish the other team, you know, to shut them down, to pitch those no-hitters, right? And we should have the mentality that the ownership has. And what is the mentality of ownership in baseball, in pro baseball, Major League Baseball, or the NFL, or the NHL, or the NBA? Their mentality is that their star players are at any given moment only as good as their performance, right? So in other words, you can have a star player, or you maybe you've traded for one, and the guy shows up, and that often happens. Often happens. Especially, for example, I used to live in Boston, in Boston sports, like the Red Sox. There are many star players that the, that the Red Sox traded for from other places like the West Coast, and they would come to Boston, and, and uh, Pablo Sandoval comes to mind and just got fat, popped his belt, and never hit anything. So, you know, these people, they just kind of wilt under Boston's uh, very harsh lights under the kind of the fierce attention of the Boston fans of the so-called Red Sox nation, just don't do well. Well, what does the ownership do then? They trade them. The ownership doesn't have any emotional attachment to these, uh, to these players, or even to the team, to be honest. The team to them is only as, 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 as good as, as its performance is within the scope of their entire holding portfolio, which more often than not involves many interests beyond the pro sports team that they own. For example, John Henry, the principal owner of the Red Sox, owns a bunch of other businesses. He owns a racing team, he owns a soccer team in England, and he owns a bunch of different things. 
So to him, the Red Sox are really as important, only as important as uh, how much they contribute to the to, to, to his uh, personal wealth, right? To the success of his business. John Henry has zero emotional attachment, let me assure you, to the Red Sox as a team, to the Red Sox fans, or to the Red Sox players. For him, they're nothing but, all of these that I just mentioned, are nothing but the means of production, the means to increase his wealth and to achieve his goals. Well, the, Amer uh, the American people in the role as owners, as invested owners of America, should have the same attitude. The American people should not, by any means, love their leaders like President Trump. Loving President Trump is not a good look for a free people. Okay? A free people, a fr a free people as a nation, free people meaning a free nation, and free people as individuals, in other words, all of us as individuals, should not love, must not love, any of our leaders. At the very least, I should say, any of our, of our leaders who are still alive today. I think it is appropriate, maybe, to love George Washington, who founded this great country. It may be even appropriate to love Abraham Lincoln, if you, especially if you're from the North, the guy who kept the country together. But loving uh, President Trump, Donald Trump, or Joe Biden, or anybody like that, but I, I suspect that most uh, of you, my listeners, uh, do not love Biden, but many of you may love Trump, and Trump in his rallies often wondered and, 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 and admired how no other politician uh, gets those uh, chants, you know, we love you. And by the way, I, I fully believe that Trump loves us back. Trump loves America and he loves the American people. And that is very admirable. A great leader should love his country and he should love his people. Okay, but... I would argue that the people should not love him back. The people's attitude should be the, the same as the attitude of the ownership of a pro sports team. The attitude of the American people who voted for Trump should be, like, should be as follows. Things are not going that great for us. We are under attack from the inside by progressive globalists who have taken over our uh, educational institutions, our legal institutions, our law enforcement institutions, our treasury, substantially all of our country, all of our cherished institutions at the local, state, and mostly federal government have been penetrated and taken over by these internal enemies. That's the situation. So America is, is, is like a team who had once been great, that's having some very serious problems. And so at least uh, one half of the American people went out and hired this, I guess you could even say a ringer. In other words, hired this outsider, right? Hired this guy who 
uh, was not a part of politics, who is a very unlikely uh, politician, not a politician, somebody who is uh, who's never played in that uh, arena. It's almost uh, kind of like uh, some of these um, uh, basketball play- players that try to become uh, baseball players and things of that nature, just because they're great athletes. And after they had great careers in one sport and kind of their career starts going downhill, they try to switch sports because it's kind of fun and whatnot. They re- very rarely succeeds, if, if, if ever, uh, at the major league level. So Trump is a little bit like that. You know, he's been successful. I don't think anybody can argue otherwise in his business life, even though there were those that were more successful. So he's not the most successful businessman that's ever lived by any stretch of the imagination, but he was successful enough. Definitely a major leaguer in business. But he's never dabbled in politics. I could say also a major leaguer in entertainment, in the entertainment business and other businesses. But he's never uh, dabbled in politics and he kind of crossed over and the half of American the, the that half of the American people that wanted yet to preserve and protect the American Republic and the American Constitution hired him, brought in this kind of ringer, right? And they said, "You have all our support." We said, "You have all our support." You t- promise us that you are up to the task. Now go and do it. And, you know, you must admit, or we all must admit, that the Trump's uh, uh, initial effort was absolutely stellar. He protected America. First of all, he defeated all the rhinos in the uh, 2015-16 primaries, uh, none of whom who stood any chance against Hillary, so he got rid of all of them. And then he defeated... Um, Hillary, who was a shoo-in and who was uh, going to destroy America or finish the destruction of America. So he got rid of her. And that's something that would forever be uh, written on the plus column on his uh, side. But as soon as he got into the White House, uh, Trump's performance started deteriorating. He did not really understand that his first order of business was to establish power, above and beyond everything else, to establish power. To take control of Washington, D.C. He somehow failed to understand that even though he was in the White House and he was the president, and he had the use of Air Force One and Marine One and all of that, and Secret Service protection and so on, he, he, he failed to understand that in reality, he still had very little power. He was a kind of like a foreign object that was embedded in that city and in that uh, government bureau, federal government uh, bureaucracy behemoth. And he never really took the necessary ruthless action to cement his power over that swamp, if you want to call it that. Instead, he tried to make all kinds of deals with them. 
uh, he hired all the wrong people, uh, uh, surrounded himself by all the worst kind of swamp creatures. And, uh, you know, it could be argued that he has made the worst hiring decisions of any president uh, in history up until this point. The people that he hired, he personally hired, leaked about him, badmouthed him, wrote entire books uh, describing how horrible he was and how misguided. I mean, I'm, I, I have a hard time... Uh, uh, thinking of one consequential hire that he made that was a good one, maybe there is an exception, Pompeo. Pompeo may yet prove to be a good one, and maybe Mike Pence. So there's a couple, Mike Pence early on, and uh, Mike Pompeo as a Secretary of State later on, after the uh, disastrous appointment of Tillerson. But all the rest of them, Gina Haspel, Chris Ray, uh, Priebus, uh, Kelly, McMaster, Bolton, you name it. I mean, they were all Trump haters, uh, traitors to America, and yet he hired them. So that wasn't good. Stay tuned for the next segment. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot sleep. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So in this sport analogy that I uh, began with in the last segment, um, it seems to me uh, that President Trump was brought in by people who cared about America deeply as kind of a last-ditch effort to protect the American Republic and the American Constitution. He was brought in as a kind of a ringer from another a different uh, field of endeavor, business rather than politics, or entertainment rather than politics. And that I think that's fairly unprecedented in American history. We had presidents who were generals, but don't forget that generals like Eisenhower uh, and so on are substantially politicians. You don't advance to be a five-star general if, if you're not a really, really good politician. But in business, these are different rules, and Trump was never really a politician. He was brought in. He had a couple of, by us, by us the people, had a couple of early successes, substantially his biggest success, and I think the one that he will uh, 
remain the most famous for and the one success that's truly lasting is to deny Hillary Clinton the presidency. And that success cannot be overestimated. It is a huge success. And for that alone, uh, have our having hired Trump uh, was probably worth it. But since then, he's had uh, a fairly spectacular uh, number of failures that all uh, uh, derived not from his misunderstanding of the situation. He understood the situation both internally and externally in America very well. His failures derived from his horrendous hiring decisions and as a corollary to that, or maybe as a cause of that, his failure to understand the ruthless nature of the Washington DC swamp and its globalist progressive agenda. And so as a result of that horrendous hiring policy, uh, Trump could not really cement any major accomplishments that cannot be undone by the, by the incoming Biden administration within weeks or a couple of months. So on the domestic front, uh, whether it's making the educational system more equitable, will that be, that will be undone by putting, by Biden's putting in charge of it, uh, the woman who runs the infamous notorious teachers union. All right. Taxes can be raised. In other words, tax cuts can be reversed and more. Regulations, well, they didn't go anywhere. They were just suspended, kind of canceled. They can be re-implemented within days. Trump's support for the manufacturing and oil and gas sectors can be undone very quickly. Trump's America first policy, uh, foreign policy, policy outside of America, is already being undone before Biden even set foot in the White House. People like uh, Mattis, who, uh, whom uh, Trump made the Secretary of Defense, another disastrous hire, have already mentioned to Biden that trying to, trying to weasel into his good favor that America should never again act. This, this whole America first thing should be taken off the table as quickly as possible. So a guy who was <laughs> a four-star general in, 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 uh, in America, I believe the commandant of the Marine Corps, doesn't like the phrase America first, believe it or not. I don't know what country he was putting first when he was in uniform, but it wasn't America. You know, uh, in the Middle East, where I come from, uh, being Israeli, I think that Trump may have his other fairly last lasting achievements. Uh, those Abraham Peace Accords, the creation of the Israel, uh, Saudi Emirates, Bahrain uh, axis uh, to oppose Iran. I think that was based on uh, real uh, kind of realpolitik, on real politics of the region. And it's very likely that no matter how Biden 
and his old school Jewish anti-Semites that he's going to put in place. There are many of them Jewish, but these are Jews that hate Israel, uh, hate the idea of Israel, hate the idea of Jewish independence, of Zionism. Anyway, so these Jews uh, who are basically from the Hillary Clinton, John Kerry school of nonsense, uh, they're going to try and undo it. They're going to try and suck up to Iran again. They're going to try and um, diminish the power of Israel, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf states. But I think that it's going to be fairly tough going for them. Uh, America is uh, much less powerful than now than it has been in the past. But Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, still have a, a ton of oil that they can sell. And Israel has technologies uh, that in many cases are better than the American ones or that were developed in Israel in the first place. And, people, and places like China, for example, need those technologies. Israeli designed and even manufactured chips are everywhere in China. They're flying in Chinese fighter jets and in Chinese spacecraft and so on. So these people are, uh, so Israel and uh, its Arab allies now, uh, if the United States under the leadership of Joe Biden turns its back on them, definitely have other places to which to turn. And they will. And they will. So, uh, you know, Donald Trump has indeed changed the face of the Middle East for the better, and that's one achievement that will remain. But I want to come back again to this point of loving your leader. The feeling of love as expressed towards a person, no matter whether president, king, or uh, shah, or sheikh, or prime minister, or however you want to call them, you know, party chairman, that feeling of love is utterly misplaced. It, the feeling of love from a person towards their political leader is a hallmark of an enslaved person. I know it sounds harsh, but if any of you, my listeners, find in your heart the feeling of love towards President Trump, you should re-examine, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, just how free you truly are. Because people who love their leaders are not free people. The feeling of love should be reserved reserved only for two, I guess you could say, entities. One is your family. And I could even say your extended family, meaning your tribe, your nation, your country. I have a feeling of love towards my country Israel and towards the Jewish people and towards my family. The other feeling of love in the Torah commands us on this is to love our God. God is someone, if you want to use that kind of 
uh, inaccurate description, whom you should love. But an individual, no matter how powerful, should never be the subject of your love. You know, there's this trope in uh, monarchies, quite often, like for example in old Russia before the revolution, where the Tsar, the King, the Emperor were supposedly God-anointed, right? They were chosen by God because it was a hereditary kind of position, right? And because they were chosen by God, they could substantially do no wrong. So whenever people in Russia before the revolution were felt like things were going badly for the country and they were oppressed, and by the way, that feeling was prevalent throughout Russia's long history. In other words, people uh, always felt oppressed and more than, more than uh, often, you know, often enough and uh, felt that the country was going in the wrong direction. But most often they didn't blame the Tsar, whoever that may have been at that point in time, because the Tsar was their Batushka. Batushka means like my daddy, right? The diminutive of father. So the Russians really thought of the Tsar as their daddy, as somebody who was placed by God on planet Earth to kind of take care of them. Well, how then do we reconcile the cognitive dissonance of this benevolent, God-appointed, daddy Tsar, you know, out there in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, and the fact that Russia is backward, that it's losing wars, that there is famine and injustice. How do you reconcile these things? Well, the answer is always the same. And the answer is that the Tsar, even though pure of heart and pure of intentions, falls prey to evil, manipulative advisors. And it's always the courtier, the courtiers and the advisors and the ministers and the you know, viziers and all of these people who are to blame. Never the Tsar himself. Except, guess what? The Tsar has absolute power to hire and to fire, to elevate and to uh, bring down whomever he wishes. In other words, the Tsar, you could, you could very well argue, and it would be true, that the Tsar's main responsibility is to surround himself with capable, well-intentioned people. And he has the full authority to do so. And if he fails to do so, then, well, it's his own damn fault, isn't it? Except the Russian people, until maybe the very last days of the Russian uh, monarchy, just over a century ago, they never felt that way. Or at least most of them didn't. 
Why? Why didn't they feel that way? They didn't feel that way because they were substantially slaves. Their mentality was, was that of slaves. And I'm not talking just about serfs or, or peasants. I'm talking about the middle classes, the merchants, and even the professional classes. They had this slave mentality. They had the mentality of the fans of baseball or football rather than the owners of the team. And what I see in America now with regards to Trump on our side is precisely the same mentality. Rather than having the mentality of the ownership, we have the mentality of fans. And we love Trump. We shouldn't. And we ascribe to Trump only pure intentions. Maybe. And we ascribe to Trump we, we, we forgive Trump, I should say. We forgive Trump for everything because, oh, it was Bolton's fault. Well, who hired Bolton? It, it's Gina Haspel's fault that she's not declassifying the documents that Trump ordered her supposedly to declassify. Well, who hired Haspel? It's Chris Ray's fault that the FBI is not investigating blatant election fraud. Who hired Chris Ray? It's, it's Bill Barr's fault that the people who committed sedition and treason in trying to get Trump out of office after the 2016 election all have lucrative gigs with media outlets and universities. Well, who hired Bill Barr? How much can we forgive? How much can we say, well, Trump, it's not Trump's fault. It's the fault of this or that or this other guy. Well, who hired the other guy and gave him all these, delegated to him all these powers? The powers that the likes of Haspel, Barr, Ray are using or not using in the American system all roll up to the chief executive, in other words, Mr. Donald J. Trump. And the buck stops with him. So if we, the American people, those who support Trump, had the right kind of mentality, if we had ownership mentality, we would say, well, you know what? We hired this guy. He did a couple of things pretty well. He got rid of, you know, this division rival. But he didn't get us to the World Series, did he? No, he fell short. So, you know, so really, he's done here. We need another guy now. And maybe it's hard to find another guy. I know that there are no prominent figures in America who are truly MAGA, who are truly America first, who are truly... America first populists. Who, are, who is out there who is nationally credible, who truly holds this ideology? It could very well be that Trump is the only one. But that doesn't mean that Trump is an effective winner. 
what it means is that it may be way too late now to save the American Republic. That's what it really means. It means that our bench is not only thin, it's non-existent. We have no bench on our side of American politics. Not that the other side has great leaders, but they have other things that we don't. Money, technology, elites, all of them. Educational systems, every single institution. They have a lot of stuff. We don't. We are in dire need of leaders and we don't have them. More in the next segment. You've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. Well, AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. Join us. We're in this together. And we consider you part of our family in our crusade to share the news commentary and agenda that can lead America back again. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Welcome back to the show, folks. You know, um, President Trump I know that we all wish that some miracle will happen and um, the courts will somehow overturn this election. But let me tell you something about the courts because it's important. And the reason it's important is because courts actually can do very, very little in America. But our side of the political divide ascribes to them various capabilities that they simply don't have. And I want to demonstrate that actually with the uh, current decision that uh, was made uh, with a 5-4 to four majority with regards to Andrew Cuomo's ridiculous uh, limits on uh, church attendance and synagogue attendance and so on. And so everybody on our side of, uh, let's say, Twitter and elsewhere is celebrating this decision. But I, your humble servant, ever the contrarian, I want to submit to you that that decision actually highlights not the efficacy of the court, but actually its utter impotence. 
And why do I say that? The decision was very limited in scope. It allows uh, the, the uh, imposition of percentage limits on attendance. So, for example, it is legal for Governor Cuomo to say that a church that normally you know, holds 200 people, in other words, it has like a fire marshal permit or a building permit for 200 people, it is completely legal, according to this decision, to Governor Cuomo to say that uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, he limits attendance to 10% of capacity. So in other words, that church would now be only allowed to put to bring in 20 people instead of 200. What is illegal for him to do, they said, was to impose arbitrary numerical limits. In other words, uh, it's what is illegal for Cuomo to do is to say no more than 20 people are going to worship in any church or synagogue. Well, you know, that makes no that that makes kind of no sense, which is what the Supreme Court pointed out. If some synagogues are quite tiny, it's like a little study room. So maybe 20 people will be shoulder to shoulder there. Some synagogues in New York are quite cavernous and can hold hundreds. So the imposition of limits uh, that are uh, numerical makes no sense. And, and the Supreme Court said it's illegal. And of course, uh, Justice Gorsuch offered the critique of, you know, uh, singling out religious um, venues as opposed to various other businesses for uh, harsh, um, let's call it anti-COVID measures, whatever, you, whatever, whatever, however you want to call it, is ridiculous. And, you know, Justice Gorsuch's um, critique of uh, the governor was you know, well-written, was well-placed, but in the end, it doesn't really mean anything. This Supreme Court decision highlights not the power of the Supreme Court, not the power of the new so-called conservative majority in the Supreme Court, but actually their utter impotence. Because all they do, all they can do, and even that with a bare majority, is just fiddle on the very margins, on the very margins of this whole tyranny that is being perpetrated upon the American people now, and of course, not only the American people. But our focus here is America. So the Supreme Court did not, is not going to, to disallow any you know, other measures such as business closures and restaurant closures and mask wearing and uh, you name it. None of this is going to be disallowed by the Supreme Court or struck down by the Supreme Court. When, when, if and when there are some measures that are just crazy, like this numerical limit on church and synagogue attendance, and maybe they also are measures that kind of disproportionately in a, in a significant way, 
harm one uh, type of organization as opposed to others, yeah, sure, the Supreme Court may step in. But what does it really mean? Not much. Nothing's going to change. Change. And this has strong implications towards what may happen with all this litigation that is designed to fight the massive election fraud that happened in 2020 in this election. What, it, what this decision suggests to me is that Supreme Court may take some sort of wimpy way out. They will not, uh, how should I say, bring to nothing or, or decertify the electors that uh, uh, were certified by states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and so on. They may have a ruling that may affect the future uh, with mail, uh, mail-in ballots, and uh, maybe they will say something about uh, uh, electronic voting machines, even though I doubt even that. They may give some decision that uh, guides future elections. But nothing in what the Supreme Court has done so far in recent history suggests to me that they're going to go nearly as far as overturning this fraudulent election. In 2000, uh, the conservative Supreme Court that was uh, seated then under Chief Justice Rehnquist, and I remember, remember that very well, well, with this Bush v. Gore case, finally was resolved by what? Bush was leading. We have to remember that. Bush was always leading by a few hundred votes. So it was, you know, plus 200, plus 100, plus 300, whatever, right? And these guys were counting and looking at these chads and, and all of that kind of stuff. And the Democrats wanted to keep counting. But there was recount upon recount upon recount. And finally, the Supreme Court said, you know what? No more recounts. But again, I want to re- remind those folks who use that uh, election as a kind of uh, precedent towards, towards, towards what may happen uh, now is that Bush was in the lead all the time and it was exceedingly close and all that the conservative court did was to say you know what guys you've had 10 recounts we're not going to do the 11th of course, I'm kind of making up the numbers, but whatever numbers were. You had three recounts, we're not going to do the fourth, right? That's that's all that happened. And that made Bush uh, the son president, right? Well, now that's not the situation. The, they uh, created the fraud that was on such massive scale that Biden's leads, quote-unquote, quote-unquote leads, fraudulent leads, in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania are in the tens, some cases more than 100,000 votes. So the Supreme Court would not have to say, listen, you know, 
stop counting or whatever. The Supreme Court will have to say, will have to agree with plaintiffs that tens of thousands of votes, however they were cast, were either illegitimate or were somehow flipped from Trump to Biden and need to be either uh, disqualified or changed. There is zero precedent of that, and I say it with a guarantee to that there is zero precedent of the Supreme Court of America taking an action of this magnitude. It has never, ever happened. The Supreme Court of America, since its very inception, was supposed to be, and this is by constitutional design. We have to remember, the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution, did not set up the Supreme Court as a kind of arbiter of divine justice or fairness. And they did so because we are only human beings. We don't know what God wants. We don't know what is really true and just. We only have opinions about it. And you may have an opinion about about something and I may have the exact opposite opinion. And so the framers did not set up the Supreme Court and, and the justices of the Supreme Court as some sort of all-powerful, you know, superhuman beings that are in there who are like uh, in direct communication with God and can somehow rule on the merits of real, you know, transcendental justice and fairness. Far from it. The framers of the Constitution knew that all we have to deal with, all we have to work with, are us sinful, fallible, gullible, uh, blackmailable, stupid humans. That's all we have. We have no higher beings. We have humans, right? With all our ambitions and drives and fears and emotions and petty, you know, jealousies and so on. And that applies to every human being on on the face of this planet, including Supreme Court justices. So knowing that, the framers of the Constitution said, well, um... Supreme Court justices are going to be uh, basically people who are polit- uh, politicians, substantially, in other, or at least politically appointed. The president, who is the ultimate political animal, uh, nominates. And then the Senate, who is, uh, I mean, which is, um, consists of ultimate political animals as well, i.e. senators, Um, confirms or does not confirm. Now, we have to remember also that before the, I believe, uh, what was the amendment that, um, was it the 19th, that made the senators directly electable? Uh, When the constitution was framed, the senators were (coughs) nominated by governors or by the congressional delegations. I should know this better but they were certainly not directly elected. So in that sense, you, you could uh, the early senators were perhaps 
somewhat slightly less political than today. And you could say that they could have, while the president was always elected and therefore always political, these somewhat less political senators could put some sort of a break, if you want to call it that, on the, on the, on the sheer political motivations of the presidents in nominating Supreme Court justices. But since now the senators are also uh, directly elected by the people in their states, they are as political as the president. So we see that the people that are being appointed to the Supreme Court, whether from the left, like Sonia Sotomayor or Elena Kagan, or from the right, like um, Amy Barrett or, or, or Neil Gorsuch, they're political animals. They have very strong political beliefs. And no matter how much they deny it, we see from their rulings that it is very much those political beliefs that guide their every decision, or at least every decision that matters nationally in America. And that is not a failure. That's how the Constitution substantially wanted it to be. That's why the Supreme Court at one point in time said that slavery was perfectly constitutional and then it wasn't. And then segregation was constitutional and then it wasn't. You know, and then uh, Constitution doesn't allow, in my humble opinion, the formation of any classes of people who have special rights, be it because of their so-called sexual orientation or disability or pigmentation of their skin, I think that that would horrify, would have horrified the people who had, who, who wrote the Constitution, and yet the Supreme Court agreed that that is constitutional, that in America is now chock full of classes of people who have special privileges, right? And this has far-reaching consequences. You cannot open a business in America and say, listen, I'm a very small business, so I'm just not going to worry about disabled access because not that I'm not a nice person, but it's too expensive. And, you know, maybe those disabled people that are in wheelchairs and so on can just go and take their business elsewhere. Well, that's illegal now in America because disabled people are a class and that, has, uh, that class has more rights than other people. Same applies to minorities and so on. So what I want to say, say to you folks is that the Supreme Court is not some sort of defender of justice. You really have to put that thought out of your head. It's just not true. The Supreme Court is not going to reverse this election fraud because it's not its job to do so. There was one person in America, one, whose job ultimately was to defend America against election fraud before that fraud happened. And that person is Donald J. Trump. It was Trump's duty to the American people to have legitimate, fair, equitable election in America. And in that duty, he was a complete failure. Self-admittedly. I mean, he tweets all the time that this election was rigged. But it was his duty 
to make sure that it wouldn't be. It was his duty to make sure that the governors, this is a federal election, and it was his duty as the chief executive of the federal government to make sure that this federal election was equitable and not fraudulent. And had he done his duty, he would have justly merited and received a renewed mandate for four additional years. But the reality is that he failed in his duty, which is why he is not going to get the additional four years. Thank you for listening. Choose to be free. Tune in next time.